I didn't forget that there's special music, like last week. Um, though I purposely wanted to move it till after the sermon. I think it'll fit better there in the service. Um, but I do want to say again, stick around for if you hear from Brad. Well, if you caught it, it'll be worth your time. And he didn't, didn't really embarrass me too badly. I remember years ago, back when we still went to Grace Bible Church, that uh, Brad, I, I think pretty much unknown to Brian Hughes that he was going to do this, walked up and gave him a Turkish kiss on each cheek. And he, I think he might have turned a little red. That was the, yeah, so you never know what's, what's going to happen when Brad comes up. But we're looking forward to that if... There, there's food. If you know, if you didn't plan, please stick around. It'd be well worth it. But uh, let's just uh, bow in prayer again before we start in here. Father, uh, this time of year we consider what a thing it is that our our Savior would come. God the Son would put on human flesh. God, your Son, perfect holy, just, deserving all glory would would step into humanity. That in itself is, is beyond our comprehension, but that he would then die instead of us. Uh, we'll never fully grasp all that that means, but we're, we are so thankful. Uh, we, are, we are in such need for that. And, and I pray as we look into your word, you'd help us to to see more, more fully what a uh, great thing that is by the time we spend in your word today, that you'd be pleased to use my words, but your spirit would work in each and every heart here today because it, we need it, uh, so that you would be honored, so that we would grow in our understanding and our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We are going to take a break for a few weeks here from the Gospel of John. Uh, to look at the, the idea of the incarnation that, that Jesus, God the Son, became man. And so this message doesn't stand alone, and I, I think you'll be glad for that by the time we're done. Um, this message, I think, will take you places maybe you weren't wanting to go on in anticipating Christmas um, because we like a warm, fuzzy feeling about Christmas, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not intending to give you a warm, fuzzy feeling this morning. I want us to, to go where, well, turn with me first just to Isaiah chapter 9. And you're saying, oh yeah, Isaiah 9, that's the one, unto us a child is born, right? Well, we're just going to start in verse 2 for now. It says, the people who walk... In darkness, we'll see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Now, so often we, we jump right to the light. But I think today, what I'd like to do is instead, let's look at the darkness first. The darkness is necessary so that we get an idea of, of what the light's about. why was Jesus coming so great? We don't begin to understand that until we review, until we or discover. What was, what was the great need? 
Why was it he had to come? Why was it something to celebrate that angels came to the earth, that, that, that we sing year after year, we praise, uh, because Jesus came? Uh, when you see a great jewel displayed, how is it usually done? You put that bright diamond, like on black velvet, right? And it stands out, it, it jumps out at you, and you say, well, that diamond is something else. But you don't really see the beauty of the diamond as well, unless you have that, that black background. Uh, the incarnation is much like that. Or to give another example, why was victory in World War II such a great thing to celebrate? And I think those of us who didn't live through that generation or especially have lived all of our lives at a distance from the, the you know, Victory in Europe Day, Victory in Japan Day. It was such, such a thing to, to celebrate, such a great thing because of the terrible things that were going on that, that it was a victory over, right? You have to understand those days in, in the context of the Holocaust, or six million Jews, as well as other many other people, were murdered by the Nazi regime. You have, to, you have to see those victories in view of Pearl Harbor, you know, where a surprise attack killed so many hundreds of U.S. servicemen. You have to, keep, have to see those victories in, in light of the tyrannical despots, Hitler and Mussolini, and their unlimited greed for land and power and domination. Their global ambitions, not just let's spread our, our borders out a little bit, but with ambitions to rule the world and dominate the world's populations. It was a desperate fight for survival and for freedom. So when victory came, against the Axis powers, against that dark background, you said, yes, here is something glorious. Now understand, I know there were, there were sinners on all sides of that conflict, but the victory over what was attacking our country and our world was something amazing. We get a little further away from it, we don't celebrate it quite with the same fervor as those first years, right? And we often, like I said, read, you know, Isaiah 9, 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government, and so on. Ah, oh, it's so good that Jesus came. But Jesus' coming was against a very, very dark background that shows us the absolute necessity of his coming and the unmatchable beauty of it. Jesus didn't come just to make our lives have a little bit better quality. Jesus came because we were in absolutely desperate need. Let's take a look at that. Maybe just maybe it's all familiar to you, but it's good to review it. Maybe it's new to you. You need to know this. So turn with me to the, to the book of Genesis, way back. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. God has created the earth, created man to live on the earth, and in this 
amazing place that he has set up for them. Verse 9, it says, Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of also of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then please drop down to verse 15 where it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So God has made this amazing, beautiful world. He's created a man. Then he created for him a wife, Eve, to be a partnership, to work together, to, to, to have different strengths and weaknesses, and, and to, to now rule over all this that he has made, right? And he gives them an amazing context. He, he, he grows a special place for them to get started at this. All these amazingly beautiful trees, food, as far as the eye can see from those trees, says, eat up. Eat anything you want except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God created man in such a way that acting out of being compelled to do what God wanted was not real life. This is where we ask, why, why the tree? Why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there in the middle of all of this beauty? See, God breathed, well, first of all, he made man in his image, right? Reflected God's being and character. And then he was given the kind of thing that only God has. Dominion over, he says, here, I made all this, you care for it. In a sense, you act on my behalf to care for all this that I've created. And in that, I think there's something that he, that he put in us that if Adam were to, and Eve were to, to do that, just simply go along without an, any option, there's a sense in which it wasn't really living in the sense that we understand humanity, right? We still resist, don't we? When anyone would even make us to do what is good today, right? You must do this good thing. Now, we're sinners, so we can't understand that fully. But I think there's something in us, in the way God created us, that in the way he wants our response to be voluntary, right? Yes, here is all the good, but I want you to willingly choose it. And so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was put there in the perfect environment so that Adam and Eve would have a choice. In our day and age, you might call it an opt-out button. Right? This is all yours. Do it with me. If you want to opt out, there's how you do it. You say, I want to be the one who has the knowledge of good and evil rather than you, God. And as long as Adam and Eve said, God, you're good. What you've given me is good. Your ways are good just continued on, but there was the opt-out button that said, I think I want to decide what is good and evil. I want to take that choice, God. 
And it was, the option was there, wasn't it? God did give a warning that there are consequences to choosing that. It says, in the day you eat of that tree, you will what? Surely die. Understand, my way is good. I am the life giver. If you choose to go away from the life giver, what can you expect? It's just a natural consequence. If you choose to abandon breathing, what happens? You die. If you choose to abandon eating, what happens? You die. If you choose to abandon the life giver, what happens? Death, right? And that's not being cruel. Uh, the thing about sin is, though, that it, that it never just impacts one person. It has a ripple effect, right? I believe every time we sin, it ripples out and impacts all of humanity and all of creation. That was especially evident in this case because in Genesis 3, we see as God comes and confronts them in their sinfulness, he tells them about the consequences how it's going to impact the generations, how it's going to impact women in, in childbearing, how it's going to impact them all in, in creating, in growing food and, and sustaining themselves. It's going to be a, wrestle, a wrestling match because you've abandoned the one who made it all, right? And so you have this ripple effect that goes throughout all of creation and continues to do that whenever we choose sin, by the way. Don't ever think that your sin doesn't impact anyone else, even when it's hidden away. It does. Every sin has an impact throughout humanity. And there's death with it. Well, they didn't drop dead right there, right? Like Adam lived for hundreds of years physically after that. And Eve, we don't know exactly how long Eve died, but or until she died. But it did happen, right? And it went on to their children, right? You read a few more chapters, and, and we find their sons, Cain and Abel, and Cain murders his brother. Very next generation, not only have they died spiritually because they've cut themselves off from the life giver, but one is even saying, I want to take life from my brother. And that's spreading. Paul teaches about in the book of Romans. So let's we'll jump ahead to your New Testament. Romans chapter 5. Verse 12. <clears throat> he explains there what happened in the garden when he says, Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I like what the Bible Knowledge Commentary says about this verse. It says that, that phrase entered into means that sin went in the world's front door by means of Adam's sin. Adam sinned. Sin just walked right into all of humanity's existence, right? Didn't sneak in. Walked in through the front door. And death came with it, right? That was an invitation. The ripple was huge. It was a tsunami, you could say, to the, to the human race. But then it also says that, it, that death spread 
to all men. And, and continuing with what the Bible Knowledge Commentary said, it says, means that death penetrated the entire human race like a vapor permeating all of a house's rooms. You know, you get that one nasty smell. Doesn't stay in one spot, right? Works its way through the whole house. That's what sin, that's what death did. Every corner now is tainted by it. That's death and that's sin. And it wasn't just them, but then it, it, it was in their children. It was passed down, and there's a sense in which their children, we as their descendants, we were there participating in that sin with them in a way. Uh, the, the book of Hebrews talks about that when it's talking about Jesus' new uh, kind of, of high priesthood. Remember it says that the, pre -high, the priest, high priests of Levi were actually, in a sense, offering sacrifices to Melchizedek, that, that doesn't mean anything to you, just, just be okay for a little bit. But this was back long before Levi was born, and Abraham gave a tenth, gave a tithe to this other priest, Melchizedek, of whom Jesus is now said to be, oh, he's a priest like him. Well, well Levi was said to be participating in Abraham's action long before he was ever born. It's a sense in which we were with Adam there. And so the choice came. When the choice came to us, guess what we did? We made a conscious choice, and we sinned too. And death spread to us, right? And it will spread to our children and our grandchildren. It keeps on spreading. That's the circumstances of this earth. We all chose to sin. And we can't point the finger and say, oh, well, if, Ad, just if Ad, Adam hadn't done that, right? Then we'd have been up. If Eve hadn't done what she did, oh, we'd be okay. Oh, if only my parents hadn't fill in the blank and blame them. Now, when it comes down to it, even though we were born to sinners, we as sinners chose sin. We said, I will Go my way. I will decide what is good and evil in this circumstance. I will become my own standard by which I'm measured. And we said, life giver, I cut myself off from you. I can, I can take care of this. I can take care of my own need for life. And if you haven't found that out, that that's wrong, desperately wrong, consider that now. wasn't, well, I guess it was a while. It was hundreds of years. God graciously dealt with humanity. And people were born, and they had children, and they had children. And, and many hundred years later, we come to Genesis chapter 6. So back, jump back to the beginning of your Bible again. But a critical point in the history of the world, of the universe, of humanity... Genesis 6, verses 5 through 13, this is where we ended up. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, 
from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Notice it didn't say Noah was sinless. Noah did everything right. And it says Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. And you probably all know what happens next. God instructs Noah to build an ark so that he and his family can be saved through the destructive flood that God sent over the whole earth and wiped out the rest of the human population on the earth. Sin had become so destructive and it permeated everything on the earth to the point that God had to, had to wipe out humanity except for the one he graciously saved along with his family. Noah and his family, again, weren't saved because they were good, but because they believed. You can look at Hebrews 11, which talks about people of faith. It says, Noah, by faith, did this. Not Noah because he was so good and so smart and everything else. No, he was a sinner too. But he trusted God and listened and followed God, right? And so sin did continue with them and their, their descendants after the flood. But God said, I, gotta, I have to dampen sin down and start fresh. Otherwise, all this is going to be Destroyed by the wickedness of man. Genesis chapter 11 is after the flood. And guess what? When Noah's family starts having descendants, they, they choose sin too, don't they? But let's jump ahead to, to chapter 11, uh, verses 6 through 9. <clears throat> and the people have gathered together they say, God told us to spread out over the whole earth, but we think we have a better idea. We're going to buy, build a massive tower. It will rise up so high that everyone will look at it and say, oh, this is the place and these are the people. We can't go anywhere else. This is God's response. Verse 6 um, <clears throat> Going down through verse 9, the Lord said, behold, they are one people. And they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. And what God does here is so good and gracious. Think, what? He split them all up? He scattered them all? Yes. He, he, he gave the different groups different languages? Yes. What a good and gracious thing because it hobbled 
the growth of evil. See, God wasn't concerned that they would mount a successful rebellion against him. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing, right? They aren't going to defeat God. He didn't think they were threatening, they're going to reach threatening heights of accomplishment against him. His concern was that there would be nothing to stop their collaboration and accomplishment of evil if they all stayed together. And and soon they would reach a point again where they would need to be destroyed because the evil had gotten to the point where it was continually always there, right? Like you said before the flood. So God broke down communication by giving different ones of them different languages, and he separated people out by large distances so that great surges of evil could be insulated in that way. For instance, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were destroyed, but not every city was destroyed, right? Those cities reached a level of evil where God finally said, enough is enough. There are some civilizations that have completely been wiped out, right, in our world. But it didn't have to be every civilization that God had to wipe out the high level of evil. And so we were blessed by different languages, by being spread out and isolated from other peoples, so that when we said, how do, how do, we, how do we become even more evil? We couldn't get all of the ideas of everybody. We couldn't collaborate with everybody. By the way, you might notice we're overcoming that. And you notice what you're seeing grow. That's all part of God's plan too, though. Okay. And then God singles out a nation for his purposes, right? Uh, gives them promises. He gives them a covenant. He says, out of all these people now, I'm going to set out one group for myself, and I'm going to work through them. I uh, gave them promises. Genesis 12, if you just go a little bit down the page from where you're at, verses 1 through 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And here's, here's the important part that he repeats over and over to Abraham and his descendants, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There is hope that through your descendants, I'm going to bring blessing to the entire earth. In other words, I'm going to deal with this problem of sin. I'm going to provide payment for your sin. I'm going to provide a person, a descendant, who will come through you, Abraham, through your children. Somewhere down that line, it's going to come. And God used used Israel, right? He did lots of things in them. One of the things he did was gave them a law, which had to do with this rebellion against God being the one who who knew good and evil. Uh, Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verses 7 through 9. And here is is talking about the fact that here is a nation that God said, here is your law. It says, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord or as Yahweh, our God, whenever we call on him? 
Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Only give heed to yourselves and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. See, God gave them his law. It pointed out what was righteousness. It pointed out what was sin and what what needed to be condemned, what was breaking away from the life giver. And Moses gave these words to the people who descended from Abraham into this nation to say, you've got something good here because God has spelled out for you. Good, evil, follow me and you'll be blessed. Disobey and there's death. Follow me and there's life. Disobey. And you're breaking away from the lawgiver, right? It's a good thing. Of course, the big problem is what? They couldn't keep it, could they? Nobody could keep it. Well, some there were some who really trusted God, and they sought to follow his way and do what he said, but but all of them didn't make it, right? And sin really is what became evident with the law. Turn with me back to, to Paul's writings, Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. He explains how that whole process works. It says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Right before this he said, uh, with the coming of Jesus, we've done, you're no longer under the law. What? No law? Well, let me explain why, he says. Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Oh, that's what it did for me. Showed me what sin was. For I could not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. In other words, oh, once God said, don't covet, what my heart wanted to do. Oh, it wanted what everybody else had, right? It just responded in sin to what God said, don't do, right? I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came al- became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. And he could say for everyone who ever tried to keep it, right? For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Or may it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. That's the point of the law. God says, let me, let me show you just how terribly, completely awfully sinful sin is. What a desperately bad thing it is so that you'll turn and put your faith in me, not in your ability to keep the law. A matter of fact, the nation of Israel, yeah, they went on for many hundreds of years, right? God kept dealing with them, kept correcting them, disciplining them as a father corrects a child. But they kept on getting more and more evil. They, they, they worshipped things that weren't God. They worshipped wood and stone and all kinds of things that had, were worthless in that regard. Warned, disciplined, they 
persisted. Finally, God did what he, by the way, he predicted that, that they would come to that point eventually, and, and eventually he had to do that. He had to send in the nation of Babylon, the empire of Babylon, to conquer them, to break them down as a nation, to haul them off into captivity, to bring them back around, to turn their hearts and minds to him. It was the best response. But of course, they didn't all do that, even after 70 years in captivity, did they? But it was a sense of starting over in which they, they really honed in, oh, these laws of God, we've got to keep them. Let's pile more laws on top of those so we don't break those laws. We'll just become a people of laws, and then we'll be okay. Which, if they're paying attention, it would have just pointed out even more their, their own sin. Israel and the world population continue to move in the direction of self-destruction. Without intervention, it's only a matter of time when really what God will need to do is to bring again some sort of huge judgment, wipe out sin. No, not wipe out sin, but wipe out humans who are sinning, right? But God has a bigger and a better plan than that, right? But stop and think about... Again, our, our condition. We're going to go through this pretty quick. Hopefully it's not too depressing, but it's necessary. What is our, how bad is our condition? What's God's assessment of us as a whole of humanity and individually? Ephesians 2, I'm just going to read these references. You can go back, and I'm going to reference some others that aren't even here. But Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says that we, without Christ, are dead in our trespasses and sin, dominated by Satan. Ephesians 5, 8, which is right before where we just were a little while ago, it says, as unbelievers, you were darkness. Notice he doesn't say you were in darkness. He says, without Christ, you were darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. Darkness is blocking something that blocks the light, right? As sinners, we weren't basically good and just made some mistakes. It says your identity, who you were, without Christ was darkness. You might remember from John chapter 3 when we were there, verses 19 through 20, when it talks about the light coming, it says, but you hated the light because your deeds were evil. You wanted to stay away from the light because it showed out up what it was you did that was wrong. That's our condition, not only not loving righteousness in God's way, but hating it, wanting to hide from it, wanting to shut it down. That's our condition. Now let's do read Isaiah 5, 18 through 23. It's a powerful passage that shows just what we're like. Isaiah 5, 18 through 23. says, woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood. Oh, woe. Be sad for. See the condemnation of those who drag their evil around with them by means of lies. And sin as if with cart ropes, who say, let him make speed. Let him hasten his work that we may see it, speaking of God. Let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass, that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good 
and good evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. Who justify the wicked for a bribe. Then take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Doesn't sound so good, does it? It's a desperate place. Paul does the same in Romans chapter 3. And he does some of the heavy lifting for us by searching these things out from the Psalms and from Isaiah. Romans chapter 3. Verses 9 through 18. Having already gone through a great argument to say those who are Jewish and those who are not are all condemned before God. Verses 9 through 18 says this. What then, as a Jew, are we better than they, that is Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Here's his biblical description of our condition, our position. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave with their tongues They keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God or respect for God before their eyes. Another sobering description of our condition without Christ. But here's just a few more really quickly. There's more than this. I don't want this to be too overwhelming. Well, maybe I do, because it's necessary. should be overwhelming. But we're described in the Bible without Christ in our sinful state as sheep gone astray, or sheep without a shepherd. We're called lost. We're called blind. We're called dead and dying. We're called short-lived like a vapor in James chapter 4, verse 14. Here today, gone like that. The older you are, the more you understand that. Without hope, without God in the world, under God's wrath, which Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians 1.9 as eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the power of His glory, Or as Jesus put it in Matthew 5, guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. And there he's just describing if you call someone a fool. We are called enemies of God in Romans 5, verse 10. Haters of God in Romans 1.30. Murderers in 1 John 3.15. Cursed by God in Galatians 3.10 and Deuteronomy 27.6. We're described as those whose the whole head is sick, incurable. 
We're described as overpowered by evil, as children of the devil in John 8, as slaves, and we're described as having an empty life. Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, right? Romans 8.20, we've been given over to futility, or is this all there is? Because of our sin. If you wanted something warm and fuzzy this morning, I'm sorry. We need the truth first. We need to understand why a Savior was so important. The coming of the promised Messiah is not a nice improvement of quality for our lives. It's not something there to give us a warm feeling, to make us feel better about where we are. The coming of Messiah was because we were in such desperate need that without him coming, we had no hope. We had no way to the future. We only faced death and eternal punishment. I wanted to stop, just think about stopping there. We have to see the light some, right? Let's go back to Isaiah 9-2 before we finish. And just be reminded of the other parts of that verse. Looking ahead to the one who will come. It says, the people who walk in darkness. Who is that? It's all of us. Yeah, you can raise your hand. It's me. But what, what, what does it say? When this one who is sent comes, we'll see a great light. Oh, well, what's better than light when you've been in total darkness? Oh, there's hope. Go down to the bottom of Lewis and Clark Caverns. Have them turn out the light. What do you love? Oh, in that darkness, I love the sight of that light, right? It gives me hope. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. In a deep, dark night, and you see the sun start to come up, right? Oh, look at that. There's hope, right? And one more place. Go to Luke chapter 1. These are the words of Zechariah, the father of the, the man we call John the Baptist. On his birth, these are the words that he, that he said, anticipating what this meant, that John the Baptist was born. It meant that the one who was sent was almost there. And he refers back to Isaiah chapter 9. So Luke 1, verses 76 through 79. And you, child, speaking to John as a baby, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Just understand God has loved us tenderly, like a father, like a shepherd, through all of this, right? With which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
That's why it's such an amazing thing that a baby was born. It wasn't that that was a warm, cozy place. If you've, you've heard enough Christmas messages to know where Jesus was born wasn't all that warm and cozy or nice. What was amazing was that this one who is the light came. Understand the blackness, the darkness, the depth of our problem. And then this Christmas, I think you'll worship the one who came with a little more fervor, a little more joy, a little more enthusiasm. Amen? Let's pray. Father, pray that as we consider this and as we head into a time of celebrating the one who came, that we would know that he didn't just come to make our lives a little better, or even to be the best example, even though he was, but he came because we were without hope and our sin had to be paid for by him. It had to be by faith in him that we gained a brand new life that would never end. It had to be by him that we were to have any hope at all, even to live this life without just compounding our problems again and again by continuing in our sin. Thank you. Help us to grasp that a little more fully and deeply this Christmas season. And, and Father, if there's anyone here who hasn't entrusted themselves to that, that one who came, who was born in the manger, pray you'd just draw their hearts right to you and they would, they would turn themselves over to the one who came to give his life for theirs, to give them new life, to bring them back into a relationship with you where they can come boldly and live this new eternal life that is from you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.